being a performer at Coachella has become almost like a badge of honor or like something that goes on your one sheet. You know what I mean? Like it's something that like gives you leverage as an artist and also is just, I don't know, seen as like, it has a certain level of prestige. Like I would compare headlining at Coachella to like, in the same way that a lot of artists would love to get like a Rolling Stone or a billboard cover, even if like, regardless of whether that's selling or regardless of what that does, just that as a concept has, is just something that's like on a bucket list for most artists. I feel like headlining Coachella, if you're someone who's trying to be a superstar, that's like a bucket list item too. So yeah, it's interesting how entrenched this festival has become in the music industry when you really think about it. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. Today's episode is about the business behind Coachella and the unofficial start to music festival season in 2023. Coachella's history is pretty impressive when you think about it. This festival started in 1999. It was announced the week after Woodstock 99 and the shit show that that festival was with just 60 days notice to then put on this festival that attracted just 24. 5,000 people and ticket prices cost $50 each and the headliner was Beck and the festival didn't make it money that year, didn't even make enough to continue in 2000 and it wasn't until its partnership with Golden Voice in 2001 that it was able to get things back on track and slowly build up to the behemoth of a festival that we see today. It's an event that attracts well over 100,000 people per day for the six days of the festival itself two straight weekends, and it attracts some of the biggest artists in the world. And this year, they're especially making its footprint seen on the global scene. The headliners include Bad Bunny, Blackpink, Frank Ocean. There's also artists like Burna Boy, Calvin Harris, and many others that are making up this year's lineup. To break it all down, I'm joined by Tati Sirsano from Media Research. We talk about what this festival does well, how it's shaped music culture overall, and its broader impact on music festival culture. Here's our breakdown. Hope you enjoy it. All right. Today's episode is all about festivals and the granddaddy of them all, at least in the U.S., Coachella. We're here to break it down with Tati Sirsano from Media Research. Tati, welcome back to the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to dive in. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this with you is because I feel like Coachella reminds me of some of the conversations we've had about a lot of these platforms that they in many ways have become the bigger brand and the destination than the actual creators on some of these platforms. And I feel like Coachella, at least from a music festival perspective, has some of that because at least in the US, this is the most popular music festival. We've seen it expand over the past two decades. And while most music festivals do rely so heavily on their headliners, Coachella is one of the ones that is still able to, in many ways, capture the same 
audience and just get a consistent following and culture around it that doesn't seem like it's as dependent on the headliners, but they still get big headliners. So how do you think that shapes the festival and how fans themselves interact with that festival? Yeah. I mean, just to like prove out what you're saying, I think I'm pretty sure Coachella tends to sell out or at least sell a a lot of tickets before their headliners are even announced or before the lineup is announced at all. So you're totally right. I think it's become a big enough brand in itself that people are just kind of ready to buy into it. And I think it's because Coachella has, it's kind of created a culture. I remember kind of the celebrity era of Coachella when like, you know, Vanessa Hudgens was like the queen of Coachella and you could go and run into Rihanna and Paris Hilton. And like, they kind of created that aesthetic of like the hippie style and all these things. And so when people buy a ticket, it's like they're buying into a lifestyle and a culture more so than the music itself. I think a lot of people go for that experience and to dress up and like buy into that, that lifestyle maybe even more so than the music. And it does seem like Coachella over time, maybe because of that, the lineups have become a little bit more like crowd pleaser and mainstream to me. Like I was looking just in preparation for this episode, like kind of looking at the history of Coachella. And I didn't realize that when it started, part of what Paul Tillette wanted to do was create like a more niche festival where you would bring together like a lot of niche artists and hope that they all have a big enough individual following that, you know, putting all that together would be enough for a festival. And it seems like the complete opposite today (laughs) in many ways. Like I think Coachella still sometimes tends to have like more left of center artists. The lineup this year is like super diverse and interesting, but it does seem like they've maybe become a little bit more mainstream over time and maybe it is because the people are going not as much for the music as they're going for like the vibe of it all yeah and dating back to that first festival it's kind of crazy that this even became what it is today because it starts in 1999 they announced this festival and put tickets on sale i think it was two months before the actual festival started. So not that much time. They announced it the same week or the week after Woodstock 99, which is just a complete shit show, which said so much about where people viewed a festival like this. And their headliner was Beck. They didn't make as much money. I want to say like 25,000 people showed up. So they couldn't even have a festival in 2000. They have to wait until the next year and do the partnership with Golden Voice and make it happen. And then, yeah, fast forward to where we are today, where it is mainstream pop artists that are doing it. And what was once this niche culture of people that just really enjoyed indie rock music, it now is this mainstream thing. It almost reminds me of something like Comic-Con in that same way, where it was this nerd thing with people that, you know, want to do live action role play in Dungeons and Dragons or dress up like Zelda. And now every mainstream celebrity is there to promote their movie. Yeah. And in the same way, you're going to dress up, you're going to like, kind of put on a costume Coachella, it is kind of a costume for most people and like, have that experience, regardless of who's playing. So yeah, I totally agree. And I think the other thing, like over time, Coachella has gotten to a place because of all that we're talking about where it has such a power on the festival market, like written into its contracts, like it has a radius clause that they get to release their lineup first. They are the first festival 
of the season. Mid-April is like pretty early. So there's also now like I think built in ways that Coachella tends to be kind of the North Star for all of the festivals. And so it's just the one that people are going to regardless of, yeah, regardless of who's playing. Yeah. I also feel like because it has a bit more of that brand and that audience command, regardless of who the artist is, I almost feel like it has a little bit of that Super Bowl effect where artists want to be able to perform on that stage because sure, they may bring some fans themselves, but they're likely going to be reaching a new audience and having exposure to people that may not necessarily have tapped in in general compared to, and I think Coachella is similar, but if you compare that to some of these other festivals that are so heavily reliant on that headliner themselves, there's a case to be made that, okay, well, if the headliner pulled those fans into the festival, then they have to then share those tickets, essentially, you know, soft tickets with everyone else. How does that compare to actual hard tickets that they could have done themselves? So I feel like there's a Coachella advantage there. And there's also a disadvantage in that you don't get, I mean, I know that I'm pretty sure already, like the data that you get on who's in your seats at shows is pretty minimal. But when you go to a festival, you don't really know who's going to see the festival for you. And you don't really know who just how many people discovered you or how many people came to your set. It's not the same as like, if you sell out an arena, you know, the number of seats that were there, you know what I mean? So that's also an interesting thing is like, you are probably getting a greater audience and this artist might be the whole reason the festival is selling tickets, but nobody is actually able to quantify that. Right. And I feel like for some artists too, there's almost a bit of risk mitigation that can come with doing a festival. Risk mitigation may be the wrong word, but I think that certain artists that have a lot of buzz or may have a lot of fanfare, it may be a lot harder for them to sell hard tickets, but if they could perform in front of this large festival crowd, they get a big advance or they get a big guarantee with the promoter and through their agent as well they can feel much more confident performing in front of, you know, thousands of fans or maybe even tens of thousands of fans on stage, even though they may not be able to sell, you know, sell out a house of blues, for instance. Totally. Yeah, no. And it, it also feels like being a performer at Coachella has become almost like a badge of honor or like something that goes on your one sheet. You know what I mean? Like it's something that like gives you leverage as an artist and also is just, I don't know, seen as like it has a certain level of prestige. Like I would compare headlining at Coachella to like in the same way that a lot of artists would love to get like a Rolling Stone or a Billboard cover, even if like, regardless of whether that's selling or regardless of what that does, just that as a concept has, is just something that's like on a bucket list for most artists. I feel like Coachella, headlining Coachella, if you're someone who's trying to be a superstar, that's like a bucket list item too. So yeah, it's interesting how entrenched this festival has become in the music industry when you really think about it. Yeah, let's look at some of the numbers here, because I think that's another fascinating piece. So yeah. we don't have hard numbers for this. A lot of it is based on past things that have been shared. But in 2017, this festival grossed $114 million, and they had around 125,000 people coming per weekend. So if you roughly do the math, you can look at ticket sales. I feel like it's like just under $500 like per attendee that ends up coming to the festival. And we likely saw similar, maybe even greater as well, because that doesn't take into account sponsorships. That doesn't take into account these brand activations and other things as well. And I know that Coachella is a festival that has taken some shit for not paying 
artists well, at least the artists that are further down that list that have much smaller font size. I think it's seen as paying the headliners well, at least I was talking to someone that understands the business well, and their estimates were that the headliners this year, so you have Bad Bunny, Blackpink, and Frank Ocean, their thought was that Frank Ocean and Blackpink got $4 million per weekend, so $8 million total, and that Bad Bunny likely got $5 million per weekend, so then 10 total. And then I believe that Calvin Harris's name was towards the bottom of that list, like Return to the Desert Calvin Harris. I think he got one and per weekend. And then the artists that are on that second row, like Burna Boy and a few others, I think it was around like seven fifty k per weekend. But then it's a steep drop-off after that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... I remember hearing from Cardi B, this was, you know, after invasion of privacy, but still before, you know, she blew up, blew up, or maybe it was the year before that I forget, but she talked about how she was paid 70K, but she saw it as an investment in her career, as an opportunity to pull up and get more. And obviously she's someone that, you know, is now getting a million dollars for private shows where she's doing 35 minute sets. But I feel like that like plays into that. So I don't know if, all of those artists are getting paid. But yeah, I think some of them are willing to take that because of the exposure. Right. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And the number that I would love to know is like how much money that, because I know you you were also talking about the boost of the local economy and that I think it was 400 million in Coachella Valley. I'm also wondering like even outside of that, just the whole business of it, like you mentioned the sponsorships, the influencer deals, you know, H&M having a Coachella section in their store, like all of these things. I'm almost more fascinated by all of these kind of like satellite businesses around Coachella than the business of Coachella itself. Like I would love to know the total number for how much revenue this festival is just kind of generating for all these things outside of it, if that makes sense. Like, because it seems to go so far. Like every store has a festival section in March and you know that what they're really talking about is Coachella. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. Like, could we look at, I'm sure they wouldn't share this, but if Forever 21 and H&M and those types of stores shared, how much more do they get from, you know, their festival and attire, whether that's, you know, the flower headdresses or whatever, you know, the crowns and the stuff that people wear or just general, general outfits as well. And then I forget the name of the brand, but there's one of those brands that I'm sure many of them do, but they pay for all the hotels that are in Palm Springs that are in Indio in the general area put all the influencers there, buy all the clothes for them, and then buy all their tickets and just have them work almost the same way a reporter would work the festival. Yeah. Like, what is the influencer economy around Coachella specifically? Like, how much money is there? I would love to know. Yeah, I feel like, because if you count that, I wouldn't be surprised if you're over a billion, especially, like, just when you count the overall impact, for sure. Did you happen to see the price of the first Coachella ticket when you were doing this? Uh, I saw this a while ago, but I forget now. How much was it? Guess. Oh, <laughs> guess. Okay. I'm going to guess it's like $75. It was 50 Oh, wow. It was $50, Paul. and this year's was 550 and that's before Wow. Fees, so, wow. Yeah. Wow. What a come up. 50 bucks to see all those artists and then only 20 other 25,000 other people there. Wow. That's something crazy. 
Yeah, I mean, so 10x there, everything's grown. And then even just the expansion, right? Because I think it was around like 2007 or so that they first went to multi-day, then they went to multiple weekends. Yeah. I wouldn't be shocked if they added a third. I think anything more than a third weekend would be kind of overkill and maybe wouldn't be special anymore. But I actually would not be shocked if they made it a three weekend thing. Yeah. One of those days. I feel like it because... If you look at the opportunity, we can talk about this now, but if you look at the live stream play that's been happening, they've only been expanding that. So this was the first year that, so YouTube has been partnering to live stream this show since 2011, I believe. But this is the first year that all six stages are now going to have a dedicated stream. And I think the pattern that we've seen now is you have an artist like Beyonce. She obviously gets the full recording of her show. She then sells that to Netflix for $20 million or however much that deal is. And then she ends up monetizing that. I assume that there's likely some compensation or some participation that Coachella and more broadly Golden Voice get from that piece of it. But what could the stepped up live stream look like further? I mean, I've watched it in past years. It's nice, but could there ever be a Super Bowl level production that goes into at least some particular part of these artist sets because they are clearly putting more and more into it as it does become a big stage and you do have a little bit more flexibility of, yeah, it's not a 13-minute set. It's an hour-long thing. And the higher the production value, the more fans are going to want to see it, the more YouTube can get more ad dollars for it and the more goes to Coachella too. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely an opportunity for that. And not just higher production quality of filming the show, but also when you mentioned the Super Bowl, like having like commentators and doing interviews and there's like, you know what I mean? There's like a halftime like conversation. I could see there being like hosts and like interviewing fans and things like that. I feel like that's probably happened at festivals before. I haven't watched that many festival live streams, but I'm trying to remember like Glastonbury's was really good this past year. And it was everywhere, like because they did such a good job with the live stream, there were clips on every social media app I looked at. It was all over the news. Like it really became this cultural moment. So I think, yeah, I think there's definitely an opportunity to like have a higher quality live stream that people will pay for. I also think on the other end of things, I wonder how much more like UGC live streams will come into play. I was thinking about this because Bill Wordy, who's the former billboard like editor-in-chief he has a newsletter you probably know what is it called full rate no cap. full rate no cap and yeah he spoke recently or he wrote recently about how so many taylor swift fans are live streaming the entire concert for the artist tour on tiktok and on youtube and getting tips for it and these streams are like pretty low quality and they're often like from the nosebleeds and you can't even see taylor but they're getting like thousands of viewers and people are paying them to do it and he kind of suggested like what could the opportunity be here, whether that's artists partnering with TikTok to live stream it, or what I think is more interesting maybe is like partnering with creators to do this. If they're already doing it, why not create an infrastructure around it? But then I also don't want to advocate for like everybody to be at the show live streaming the entire show and like have their phones in their faces. And like, I know artists hate that. I know fans hate that. I hate that. So it's an interesting question and I don't know exactly how it would look, but I feel like UGC live streams could come into play like on the opposite end of these like more high production shows or live streams. Yeah, I think so too, because you, 
of course, there's always going to be something for the high production quality camera that you see. And even that I still do believe is under monetized to a lot of extent. I mean, we don't have public numbers, but I could just assume based on what you see from sports and other rights. But the UGC thing is huge because I just feel like you could have some unique angle. You're getting the experience yourself. I'd love to know like what those tipping numbers do look like. But yeah, I think it's huge because while a tour, I think there may feel like a less scarce aspect for that. It just in the fact that, yeah, you know, Taylor is only doing this once, but she's doing roughly 50 shows, right? But there's only going to be two of these times that, at least right now, that Frank Ocean is going to be doing this headline set. And it's, you know, when we release this podcast, it'll be right in this time frame. But like, that's it. Like, there's scarcity around that. People want to see that. They're going to want to go back and watch it time and time again. So I think there's something there. I feel like we start to see some of this where, I'm sure you've seen it. Artists are starting to record one of the shows from their concert and then have that as something that you can watch on Amazon or something you can watch on HBO Max or Hulu. So we're seeing some of that, but I still feel like there's an opportunity to get more fan. Like Even if you get fan views in there and get them have some type of participation from when the doc ends up getting sold or whatever that is, I feel like there's a few interesting ways to do it. I mean, I even think about like YouTube reaction videos and how like that's such a huge space of people like for all sorts of things, like listening to the new Taylor Swift album and live reacting and people watch that. And I could see a similar thing at a festival, like live reaction to the Frank Ocean set. And then afterwards, you're like telling everyone what you thought. Like, again, I don't want to advocate for more phones at shows, but I feel like people are already doing this. And so maybe it's a question of like how to support it and make it a better experience. I don't know. Yeah. it will be interesting to explore. I feel like the other unique thing about Coachella, we could talk a bit about pricing. You mentioned itself, the price is 10 X in 24 years since the first Coachella. But as this festival becomes more expensive as touring itself, especially to see these headliner type artists becomes more expensive. You talked a lot about, or you mentioned how does that impact the actual experience and how does that impact what fans may want to do like how do they justify buying separate tickets to see just one artist versus being able to see multiple ones in a festival what are your thoughts on that yeah no i mean i think there's multiple factors kind of pushing toward festivals being a kind of solution for a lot of fans today one is as i've you know shouted from the rooftops in so many of our conversations like listenership is really fragmenting and people tend to listen to way a wider spread of artists today making it kind of hard to have a mainstream or a superstar or harder to have a superstar and they're also focusing more on songs often than artists and then on top of that costs for pretty much everything are skyrocketing so yeah if you're someone who listens to a wide range of artists and you're more likely to be to kind of center your fandom around songs than artists themselves. And you also are not maybe able to afford going to five different shows anymore. Why would you not rather go to see a festival? I mean, not that festivals aren't expensive because they're enormously expensive, especially when you factor in travel and the outfits like we've talked about and all of these things. But I just, given all the trends with listenership that we're seeing, I feel like festivals will become even more popular for consumers. I also think some of this may shift genre by genre. And to some extent, I do look at it a bit bittersweet to some extent, because I look at festivals like, let's look at two of them, 
Rolling Loud and this Lovers and Friends Festival that I know had been canceled and I know they had recently had one. Rolling Loud, of course, is primarily rappers and hip hop artists. Lovers and Friends is more of that R&B that I think that a lot of millennials and even some younger Gen X folks grew up with. Because those festivals exist in that same way, it's great to be able to bring those artists together. I do wonder, though, has that dynamic hurt any of those artists' impact to be able to generate not just real fans that may definitely want to see them by buying hard tickets, but how does that help them grow the fan base in a way that doesn't make them just rely on doing Rolling Loud and then just getting an upfront check to do that as opposed to the long-term gains that could come from, okay, yeah, you may not be performing for as big of an audience relative to your social following, but what could that build up to down the road? And I think even for some of these legacy artists that are doing Lovers and Friends Fest, I remember I was talking with someone about this recently and they were like, yeah, you know, as much as you like Lovers and Friends Fest, like those artists are the more indirect way seeing them all the way they do now. Right. Like the festival makes a lot of like on paper logical sense for consumers, but does it make sense for fandom? Like, is it actually helping artists nurture fan bases or is it just feeding more into what I was saying about, you know, a lot of people just kind of listening to songs and not artists. So yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And a lot of these artists that are playing those smaller, more niche festivals are playing a ton of them. And if it's like, Megan Thee Stallion is playing at 10 different festivals. Why are you going to buy a ticket to her tour? Like, I think it could kind of cannibalize some of those sales or like diminish people's interest in going to the tour as well. Or maybe they go and they're like, oh my God, Megan was incredible during her shorter set. I want to go see her on tour. Like, I don't know, maybe it goes both ways. But I do think that we might see more and more of those smaller and more niche festivals for all of the reasons that I've mentioned, like, I think we've seen more and more. There's so many nostalgia festivals now. There's so many, like, speaking to a very specific scene. Like, I forget what it's called, but there was one that was almost like, it was kind of like Emo Night, but as a festival. Like, I think we're, I think we're probably going to see even more of that. And those are going to be the ones that don't cost you, you know, two grand to go to Coachella. And it's maybe a little bit more accessible so yeah, I think I think we're probably going to see more of those type of niche ones. Do you think that there's certain artists that don't need Coachella? I know we talked about how it's beneficial for headliners, but I thought a lot about The Weeknd doing Coachella last year, and he was a late addition. Travis Scott was supposed to be the headliner, but after Astroworld and the tragedy there, he didn't do it. The Weeknd does it. The Weeknd already had this tour planned. He did that tour in Southern California. He had still performed at SoFi Stadium later on that year. I don't know how the radius and the time frame works out there, but I'm sure there must have been enough time there. But I wonder if, okay, beyond the $8 million, we could assume that he got from that. I mean, that's roughly what he would make from one of these stadium nights that he would do on his own tour. Did that benefit him in the same way? I don't know. I mean, I think I can clearly see the benefit for... Blackpink or even Bad Buddy and others where, hey, this is a statement. You're here on one of the biggest stages we have in the US and you aren't from this country and you don't live here. There's a big influence that that can have. But 
does it make sense for the weekend, right? I know that people have often talked about when would Taylor Swift do it and whether that's talking about the Super Bowl or even Coachella, but even if we just talk about Coachella, like even if you paid Taylor $10 million or $12 million, is that going to be more beneficial for her when she can sell out football stadiums herself doing her own thing? Right. So It's, it's more important for Coachella than it is for Taylor Swift to be at Coachella, I guess. I would think so because, I mean, yeah. on one hand, yes, we know Coachella is going to sell out regardless, but they could get more of those fans that may do participate in other, you know, economic, you know, aspects of the festival. Totally. Yeah. And they have more control over things and everything. Yeah. I think you're right for an artist like The Weeknd or Taylor Swift. It's probably more about like checking off that bucket list item or like having that prestige of performing at Coachella than it is like a material benefit. I think you're probably right to question that. But then you're right for an artist like Blackpink, it means a lot more and is probably a lot more impactful in terms of like revenue and fan building and things like that. Another topic you brought up about festivals right before we had started recording, you're talking about a festival you had went to recently in Knoxville, Tennessee, and it was spread out across different music venues in the city itself. And you also said you're done with festivals on festival grounds. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that could be interesting to dig into a bit. Yeah. No, it was perfect timing to do this episode because I went to the antithesis of Coachella last weekend, which is a festival called Big Ears in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was a 10-year anniversary of this festival. And in terms of the types of performers there, it was a lot of kind of like experimental and independent and folk music, instrumental artists like Sun Ra Orchestra was one of the performers. I also, my favorite performer was a rock band from Niger called Etran Delaire. Like it was all these kind of like from all over artists. And so that was one part of it that was cool. It was very niche and it was very much a scene, kind of like I'm talking about having these like more niche scene oriented festivals. And it was held across the venues in Knoxville of which there are like 10 or 15. And they're all about a 10 minute walk from each other. And they also had performances in movie theaters and in cathedrals and in these sort of like non-traditional spaces. And it was just such a more enjoyable experience to me than being locked in a pen in like a parking lot and like, you know, having to pay $10 for water and like feeling very Lord of the Flies for 12 hours. Like it was such a better experience. And it, it also struck me how much it could be you know, a big thing for the venues in that area. It's a big thing for the community and for the culture of the city. Like, I don't think you could like turn Coachella into a festival, like across the venues in LA or like New York or something like, like I don't think it would work for something at that scale, but it did make me think that there could be more of, I think, and I'm sure that there are, I'm sure others exist, but that there could be more of these types of festivals that are a bit smaller, a bit more niche and are held in a city. And you're also bringing the music to consumers rather than people having to travel to someplace like LA, like just having these festivals in smaller cities. I just think there's a big opportunity there. And also just to innovate the festival experience in general. Like why do we have to be, you know, in a parking lot and, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's been better innovations in like, like I know the food at festivals has gotten a lot better over time. It used to be like frozen pizza was like your only option. And now there's like crazy food tents. But yeah, it just got me thinking about like how to innovate the festival experience and what the future of things looks like. 
That's a good point because it makes me think of the film festival variety that we see where there's different vibes, but a lot of it is based in existing venues and it does bring a bit more traffic and general activity to that area, but it's a bit of a different experience, right? Whether it's, you know, Tribeca or even here in San Francisco or in Sundance, I mean, you you could also get a little bit of a different vibe too, where, okay, if you want to go skiing in Park City, then you can go to Sundance in January, right? If you want to go on the French Riviera afterward, you can go to Cannes. Like there's so many different vibes, but I feel like in general, when people think of music festivals, it is wearing that Coachella outfit and being somewhere in an open field with not a lot of shade and, you know, like that type of thing. So I feel like it could, and then, yeah, it could just bring a little bit more variety to some of these things. And the fact that it already exists is good, but it could probably bring a bit more, you know, boom to some of these other areas that may want something unique. And ideally, if they're not overlapping on headliners, which is another thing that I know is an ongoing challenge with these festivals. I feel like when Outcast did their whole festival run, where I forgot how many they did in 2014, that was the first year that stuck out to me where I was like, oh, some of these artists are just going boom, 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 same festival, same yeah. festival. Yeah. So you have that, some artists that would do it in the same years, but then you also have some artists that would just come back and do the same festival time and time again, and it really isn't that much different. What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. I want to say one more thing about the big years thing really quick before that question, which is how that kind of festival could expand the audience, like the TAM of festival goers. Like I would say about half of the people at big years were 55 plus. These are not people that are going to Coachella, you know, like, I mean, maybe they are, but I think there's other demographics and other age groups that would enjoy going to a festival if there was a bit of a different experience. So I feel like there's a lot of groups that we're not hitting with the traditional festival market and like this venue model could be kind of like that. But yeah, in terms of festival lineups getting a lot more homogenous, I kind of can't help but attribute it to the fragmentation trend that we've been talking about and how much harder it is to create a new mainstream superstar today. Like, yeah, I think that a lot of festivals are finding it harder and harder to find these kind of crowd-pleasing headline acts and there aren't as many new ones coming up. And it also seems like festivals are kind of continuing to dip into these legacy acts from times when the industry was less congested and less fragmented. Like the Glastonbury lineup, it's yeah, Arctic Monkeys, Elton John, and Guns N' Roses. And it's like, this could be the lineup a decade ago. So it does feel like not only are festival lineups becoming more homogenous, but a lot of them are tending to book legacy acts rather than newer mainstream stars, maybe because there aren't as many newer mainstream stars. I don't know. Yeah. I think that that headline spot is probably where some of the I don't even want to say contention, but some of that decision-making can lie in. Maybe a lot of this applies to festivals that aren't like Coachella a bit because they are a bit more reliant on the headliners themselves. And because of that, they're more likely to make what they feel is safer picks. And unfortunately, a lot of these safer picks end up being more male, more white, and more legacy acts that have likely been there before. So 
if they're like, okay, well, we knew that Arctic monkeys were, you know, huge in 2012, then let's bring them back in so we can try to command some of that same audience. And it's like, well, you also have local stars and others around the world that don't fit into those same categories that could do it, but they feel like that's a risk, unfortunately. And then if they do invite those folks, it's for less money and they're name is smaller and they're not presented as a headliner in the same way. So I think that's one of the downsides of it. And the fact that I think fragmentation plays into this, because I think, you know, regardless of who you are, it has just become even harder to have artists break out. The artists that do break out, they're more likely to maybe break out within their particular region. It's harder to have that same global appeal in that same way. And I think we've seen maybe a few outlier examples of that more recently, especially when you look at Coachella's lineup this year with Burna Boy and Blackpink and Bad Bunny all having prominent placement in their festival. I'm curious what that looks like in future years. How do you maintain that? Because even from that perspective, yeah, there's other artists that are huge, but they've already kind of gotten some of the biggest ones that we've at least had at this particular moment. But there's others. I'm curious I forget if Dua Lipa has headlined one of the big, huge festivals in the world. I don't think she has yet, right? That's a good question. She hasn't headlined Coachella. She definitely had a big set at Glastonbury, but I don't know if she headlined. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I feel like that may have been a few years ago, but I forget if that was like before or after the future nostalgia tour. And then after that, just thinking of other artists that have gotten huge in past recent years, whether you have Billie Eilish or SZA. I mean, there's a few, but... I'd be interested to see whether or not those names become headliners. Maybe we're seeing some of these festivals do this now where outside lands, which is, you know, right here in my backyard of San Francisco, their most recent poster, instead of having three headliners, one per day, they have 10 artists that have big font size names. And then they have the other 60 or 70 that all have, you know, smaller, but it's all kind of the same. And, you know, you just look at the names of these artists. I'll just say right now for outside lands here. Kendrick Lamar, Foo Fighters, Odessa, Lana Del Rey, The 1975, Megan Thee Stallion, Zed, Janelle Monet, Maggie Rogers, and Fisher. And I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to call anyone out. But there's certain artists on that I just mentioned there that would not headline Outside Lands if it was presented as, oh, these are the three headliners. Um, and they may not even be on that second row either. But is that in some way reflective of where things are, where it may make it easier? And of course, you could probably guess based on the order of those names. Kendrick Lamar's name is at the top you know, of this list. But still, like, is this some type of reflection of this fragmentation where you have all these different genres? Most of these artists more modern current artists, except for, you know, Foo Fighters, a bit more legacy that has continued to play on. But I wonder how often we'll see that with other festivals that are maybe closer to outside lands and Coachella where, you know, still a major huge festival, but they're not getting the same headliners that Coachella is. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I I think we're going to see that type of lineup more at the same time as we're seeing that there are fewer of these like Beyonce level mainstream stars, we're seeing a growth in the middle tier. We're seeing a lot more of these like cult stars and also artists on that list who are huge, but aren't really at the level of, you know, some of like Madonna or, you know, these artists of the past, these icons of the past. So I think it makes more sense rather than having, you know, three headliners 
to have like six not as huge artists still have a really big following. I think that makes a lot more sense for the festival, for the people going. And I think we will start to see more of that just because of the way that fragmentation is playing out. Yeah. I also wonder when we're going to start to see like the millennial version of legacy artists start to perform. Like it was funny when I saw like the lovers and friends lineup, I was like, Oh my God, when you start getting a nostalgia festival marketed to you, that's when you know you're getting old. That's when you know you're no longer like the youngest. (laughs) And like, I wonder when we'll start to maybe tap into like nineties and two thousands era sort of icons. Like I would love to see like Missy Elliott headline Coachella, like that type of thing. And I wonder if that's going to be like the next step once we've exhausted all the times that like Foo Fighters can possibly headline a festival. I know, right? Like we saw, but you know what I mean? Like for sure, for sure. Yeah. Because I feel like we saw Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg were headliners maybe around 10 years ago. And then they had brought the Tupac hologram out infamously. You remember that? So we did have that. And of course, you know, that kind of reminds me of the Super Bowl that from a couple of years ago, but I do feel like there's a sweet spot there given where Usher is right now, the popularity of his residency, I wouldn't be surprised if he jumps back on this circuit and he's doing less of the lovers and friends and he's doing more of the headlining major music festivals. Because I feel like there's a huge opportunity there. Yeah, great performer. I think he still does great stuff. I wanted to see if I can go make it to Vegas to go catch this residency before it ends. But yeah, I I think that there is a sweet spot there for that. I mean, you think about other artists. I think Justin Timberlake has probably done some of these already. So we've seen him do them. I don't know if Britney Spears would probably perform in that same way, but we'll see. I feel like there's a number of artists that they can tap into from that era. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I guess before we wrap things up, are there any predictions you have then for... Let's predict what 2024 would look like. Three headliners. Who do you think would most likely be a headliner for Coachella 2024? I would say SZA. Probably, I would say Dua Lipa. I think she makes a lot of sense as a headliner too, just in terms of like how, I hate, like, I don't want to say like crowd pleasing or mainstream, but like, cause I feel like that sounds like I'm giving her shade and I'm not, I think she's incredibly talented, but like she would please a big swath of people with her music and she's a cool performer and she has some time now, I think since she's not touring, but okay. So Dua Lipa, SZA, this is about to be an all female. <laughs> Headliners, this is a bit of wishful thinking, but I would love to see, because I don't know if she's ready for this yet, but I would love to see Rosalia headline Coachella. I think she's getting there. And I actually saw her in 2019 at Coachella. She was playing the tiniest stage ever, and she treated it like she was in a stadium. Like the production quality and the dancers and just like everything she put into it was incredible. And she's risen a lot over the past few years. So yeah, that's my trio. (laughs) Nice, nice. All right, we have one in common. We have SZA. So I'm going to go SZA, Madonna, and Usher. Mm. I think that's going to be my prediction. I feel like Madonna has this tour coming up. Maybe she'll cap things off with a Coachella performance. But I feel like, yeah, if you're going to have this tour, I forget the name of it, you're going to go back through all her eras. I feel like there's something unique there. So, so yeah, I know. 
I know, and we'll have to revisit this. We still have a number of festival lineups to get announced this year. So we'll have to check back in and see how do these continue to develop, what continues to shape in, how these festivals continue to evolve over time. So Tati, this was great. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week. Thank you.